Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Okay, so this is the podcast and the blog for Friday, October 22nd, 2021. And the blog part goes like this. It's entitled Child Welfare Vigilantes. Years ago, when I was running the Yonkers, New York Department of Social Services, I started getting complaints about men showing up at people's homes with guns and removing their children. I had to persuade an upset community that they weren't our caseworkers. These men had somehow reactivated a long, unused Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children license, probably from the 1880s when there were no public child welfare agencies, while the state legislature quickly terminated that license. Today, some activists favor turning over child welfare to communities. How would that work? Would Yonkers-style vigilantes pop up? Would neighborhood watch programs start removing children from their homes? Would the nice neighbors who said we would start taking children in actually be sex trafficking them? Child welfare unquestionably needs reforms, but it doesn't need abolition. Life-altering decisions about families must be made by a legally accountable public agency. So this bizarre incident I mentioned in Yonkers, New York, came out of the blue. One day at work, I started getting upset calls from people in the community, mainly, as I recall, from black families about what they described as old white guys showing up at their door with guns and taking their children. We were totally stumped. We had no idea what was going on. We had two full units of child protection workers, but every one of them was female. And of course, we wouldn't be doing that kind of thing anyway. Definitely not with guns. As I said, it came to light that some of these men had figured out how to activate the license for the Yonkers, New York chapter of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, an agency which had long since been inactive. After a week or so, we finally figured it out. And as I recall, when we did, the legislature actually got called into a special session to take away the SPCA charter. Understanding how there would be a nonprofit that could legally take children from their homes requires going back into history a bit. The public response to child maltreatment in the United States dates to the early 1690s, when the principle of parents patriae, or parent of the people, was first articulated. 
<clears throat> Under this principle, care for abused and neglected children was designated to be the responsibility of local government and private institutions. Uh, this designation appears to be honored today more in the breach than the observance, but that's a topic for another time. So for a long period, it was only private institutions that took on this role. I understand there were agencies doing some kind of child welfare work as early as the 1830s, but the thread that I've picked up historically begins in 1853 when Children's Aid was founded in response to many children being orphaned and becoming homeless in New York City. Children's Aid, according to their website, operated lodging houses, fresh air programs, and industrial schools to support an estimated 30,000 poor and orphaned children living in the city's streets. In historical context, not all nonprofit responses to child abuse and homelessness have been universally applauded. Children's Aid, for example, initiated the Orphan Train movement, and there's a link to it in our blog, which intended to rescue children from the streets by connecting them with foster parents. And while this allegedly worked out well for some children who landed in appropriate homes, Many of them were actually shipped to rural and western states to work on farms as, in effect, slave labor. Then, in 1874, a guy named Henry Berg, who was the head of the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, took on the case of eight-year-old Mary Ellen McCormick, sometimes known as Mary Ellen Wilson. She was horribly beaten, starved, and otherwise deprived by her foster mother, in what is considered the first legally prosecuted case of child maltreatment. As there were no child protection statutes at the time, Berg and his lawyers got Mary Ellen removed from her foster home somehow using a writ, and I'm probably not going to pronounce the Latin right, of de homine replegiando, which is bail. It's the legal remedy used to bail a person out of detention. So in the subsequent trial, the foster mother was sentenced to one year in prison upon conviction for assault and battery, and Mary Ellen was taken in by relatives. Apparently, her life went much better from that point on, and she went on to be, uh, as an adult, to live a normal life. Then Child Protection Services first emerged as an official national government response to child maltreatment when the Federal Children's Bureau was established in 1912 over 100 years ago, to provide a national public framework for addressing child welfare, which is, as many of you know, comprised of child protection services and out-of-home placements, which includes foster care group homes, residential treatment centers. The Children's Bureau is currently still housed in the Department of Health and Human Services. So, Subsequently to that, child welfare began to develop as a recognizable field staffed by professional social workers with its own research and journals and standards. Then fast forward to the present, when some activist groups are calling for the abolition of child welfare. Their proposals are somewhat parallel to the calls to defund law enforcement. One of the main articles describing this proposal is attached to our blog. There's a link to it, and it's called Upend Social Child Welfare. Uh, Upend is spelled small U-P, capital E-N-D. The authors appear to be from their CVs of all African-American scholars, academic people, who have, however, support from some influential institutions, including, as an example, the Center for the Study of Social Policy. 
And a lot of their analysis focuses on the concept of heightened surveillance, meaning that black children and also indigenous children and their parents get screened into child protection at a disproportionate rate because they're in high poverty areas where there are many more eyes on them and their families because of, for example, having more EBD teachers, more special education plans, more probation officers and police hanging around and so forth. Now, I apologize, but I'm not very knowledgeable about the research on heightened surveillance, so I can't really comment on it with a lot of weight. But I have seen data that black and indigenous children and their families in particular are screened into child protection for situations where white families would be screened out. So I'm certainly open to the idea that heightened surveillance plays a significant role in the disproportionate screening in of black and indigenous families into child protection, and I just need to learn more. Where I part ways with the up-end proponents is not their analysis, but their solutions. The idea that one would turn over decisions about custody of children to people in the neighborhood or community, it definitely doesn't sync with my own experience. <clears throat> I personally grew up in public housing, in the projects, if you will, and there is no way I would want my neighbors to be making decisions uh, about what to do with my alcoholic mom or my juvenile delinquent older brother. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure I would not want my neighbors doing that if I happen to live in Edina, Minnesota, or Shaker Heights, Ohio, or Scarsdale, New York, either. Having some random group of untrained people who are not particularly close to you make critical decisions about your life does not seem like a good idea to me. Now, this isn't to say, as, as most of you know, that Safe Passage trusts child welfare to be making consistently good decisions about families either. If you've followed our work over the past several years, you will know that we are pretty serious critics of child protection and foster care. The only difference is that with public agencies, there's at least some guardrails and some levers that the public can use to hold the agencies accountable and try to improve performance. And also in terms of what the agencies can do, there are some legal limits on their powers as well. One prominent person around here who is active in our field is Kathleen Blatz, as many of you know, the retired Chief Justice of the Minnesota State Supreme Court. And she responds to critics of foster care by making an, an analogy to a dirty operating room. She says, if you have people in the emergency department that need surgery, don't shut down the operating room, clean it up. So we put our efforts at Safe Passage into improving transparency and accountability in child welfare rather than writing it off as a lost cause. Regarding transparency, for example, we are advocating that whenever a child is murdered, the County Department of Social Services be required to immediately disclose whether there was any involvement with child protection. This is done in a few states and counties and we want to emulate that. In addition, counties are, in theory, required to produce a fatality review report within 30 days of a child's murder due to maltreatment and then release it to the public. In reality, it's pretty difficult to get a hold of these reports and believe me, we have tried. So we're advocating for the legislature to make sure that these reports do actually get released to the public according to law. Another example we have been fighting for for years is to put out a county-by-county county report on how many times children were reported to child protection. And in fact, this was a recommendation by the 2015 Governor's Task Force on Child Protection, a recommendation which the state and counties haven't fully followed up on. 
I have seen from private reports 25 plus times that children were reported, and it's not at all unusual to see children reported 15 or more times. So what we want to see is a report at the county level showing how many children were reported once, twice, three times, up to X times in each county so we can see how frequently that county repeat, repeatedly screens out maltreatment reports. This is important because research shows that maltreatment reports generally aren't made for trivial reasons. In fact, the single most accurate predictor of a child's death turns out to be whether they were ever reported to child protection. And when there are repeat reports, the concern for children goes way up. Sometimes people encounter that, encounter that there are situations where an aggrieved non-custodial parent may be maliciously making repeated maltreatment reports. But if you look at the federal analyses of these over time, they usually estimate that this is occurring less than 1% of the time. And then regarding accountability, you know, well, where do you start? Any, any world-class business and many government agencies even use management techniques that have been developed and proven over the last 30-plus years, maybe 40 years, including continuous quality improvement and business process redesign, or sometimes that's called re-engineering, and various forms of quality review audits and programs. So there has been a very large body of knowledge built up around quality improvement techniques that should be standard operating procedure in government agencies generally and in child welfare in particular. In child welfare, the latter would be imply case reviews using the goals and standards of the particular agency. So as an example, in Utah, the way this works is that everyone is trained in the same case review protocol from line workers and supervisors and managers right on up to the state secretary and even a few legislators as well. Then all these people do reviews. The, the supervisors are the people they manage uh, or workers do peer reviews on a regular basis. And as a result, everyone internalizes the quality standards. They start thinking in terms of these quality standards as they do their work. They not only internalize them, they digest them and they metabolize them. It's second nature. And I may have mentioned this before, but in Utah, they use a variety of process measures such as whether children were visited in foster care monthly, uh, if children go to court on schedule, if children are in foster care, were they interviewed separately from the foster parents, and whether children with a reunification plan were placed no more than 25 miles from home because, by the way, it turns out that that mileage uh, is about the point at which reunification plans start to fail. And the fact that workers not only get reviewed by their supervisors, but also by their peers, really helps people to start paying attention to the metrics. So managers in Utah have told me in interviews that the performance on, they, they have these 23 of these measures in this protocol, the performance improved from the low to mid 60% range to the low to mid 90% range within two years after they started doing these quality reviews. So you can just see the impact of having just a disciplined process for looking at quality uh, in child welfare programs. And perhaps the most underutilized tool is business process redesign or BPR or reengineering. A good PPR project typically, I mean typically, we're not talking about the best case, usually cuts the amount of time spent on various steps in a business process by 50% or more. So it would be really interesting to apply this, for example, to doing a family assessment or making a foster care placement. 
this would really be useful in terms of the amount of time the caseworkers spend on the care and feeding of the state's social services computer system, known here as SSIS, or Social Services Information System. Now, I've done polls nationally. I've talked with people over the years. I've heard consistently from states all around the country over the past probably 20 to 30 years and from workers and supervisors in Minnesota since I've been here that workers are spending at least 50% of time of their time, and some say 75% or more of their time, getting information into the darn computer system. And I've heard those numbers from so many people over uh, a long period of time that I really believe that that's probably pretty accurate. In Minnesota, it reportedly takes a whole day just to close a case in the system. So um, a decent BPR project for SSIS could greatly increase the amount of time available for casework and greatly reduce the frustration of workers. I once saw two workers storm out of the Washington, D.C., Child Welfare Agency, literally shouting on the elevator because they had just spent two days trying to get a case into that computer system and it crashed. So they, they actually lost people, uh, you know, MSW level people in, in D.C. And I saw it firsthand because of the difficulty working with these computer systems. And they're the same basic system all around the country. The states have to use uh, the same one to build their system in order to get federal money. Um, one important thing to remember here is that every hour you save of casework time, uh, you know, in managing the computer system, every hour of time you spend in managing the computer system drops to the bottom line, which in our business is time for casework. So uh, if you dropped the percentage of time that workers spend on the system from, you know, by 50%, you're practically going to double the work, workforce overnight. So we've been advocating for years for people to take a look at this and try a re-engineering project, but so far we haven't been able to get a lot of traction either with the state or the county operating agencies or the legislature. So similarly, very few agencies make use of predictive analytics, a relatively new tool, but not that new, uh, which uh, has been shown to identify the types of situations that are the highest risk. Florida did a great project on this a few years back. For example, children with disabilities are much more likely to be abused. So you would, you know, take a closer look with children who are in wheelchairs or whatever. And if the information that was learned from predictive analytics in a particular state or county were actually folded into the day-to-day -day operations, we would have a really different level of priority responses than we do now. So these are just a few of the tools that we work with to, uh, to get support for uh, in our advocacy work and which we believe over time would really improve the system. And in contrast, I would just say that abolishing the system and leaving it up to the neighbors to figure out what to do with children takes us back to the 1880s and earlier when children who were in dire straits were just plain out of luck. There really was no one there to help. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential.
you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.